The following audio is from Living Acts Church in Tyler, Texas. For more information about the church, you can visit our website, www.livingactschurch.com, or you can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Church. If you would uh, take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah 33, Jeremiah 33 this morning. We're going to be looking at a portion of that chapter, and we're going to read a different portion than what's read already this morning. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I uh, just want you to know I hate food, and um, I'm done with food for the rest of my life. No more food for me. So all that to say, will you stand with me in the honor of reading God's word this morning? And we're going to read verses 1 through 9 of Jeremiah chapter 33. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you've not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. Behold, I will bring it to health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth, who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now today we begin um, our Four weeks of, of Advent, and, and Advent is a, a time of preparations. You, you probably know already for the coming King, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a time to remember and to think upon the one who came as a child to ex- for the express purpose of growing in perfect obedience to manhood, of, of being obedient to the Father and to die a death that we could not die to be our substitute, to endure the wrath of the Father for the expiation of our sins. And Christ became, we call it the propitiation, so that the Father would be favorably disposed towards us. And so this morning, we're going to learn that he is our expectation of hope. And if there's one thing that most of us need, I'd say all of us, we need hope. I mean, we live in in such a world that if we did not have hope for the future and hope for everyday living, I wonder sometimes we could really exist. And and I know there are people that do, but it's hard for me to understand. How do people live without the hope of Jesus daily? How do they endure this world and the sin that permeates everything and then actually make it through all that? So this morning, what I want to do is I want to remind us of the hope that is to come and the hope that is present even with us now. And I'm sure that many of you even today need hope. You you don't need 
a, a worldly type of hope, a hope that's basically a wish. You know, the, the hope that says, I, I hope I win the lottery, or I, I hope this happens to me. It, it becomes a wish. But what we need is a sure, steadfast, immovable hope, a hope that will last and it's going to pass the test of time and pass the test of this earth and yet will endure then even beyond this earth. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Jeremiah 33, and we're going to notice in Jeremiah 33 uh, a world that desperately needed a sure hope. And here's a world in which we learn this, and this is kind of an uh, idea of what has happened in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was in jail. We know that, and this wasn't the first time. And remember what Jeremiah had to do. Jeremiah had to actually prophesy against his own people. He had to tell them all the terrible things that were going to happen to them. And Jeremiah, uh, Jerusalem was being besieged by Babylonians. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies were marching against the city of Jerusalem to destroy it. And all the judgments, if you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, you read all these judgments, all these warnings, they were about to come down on God's people. The streets were about to be laid waste. This is what the Lord says in verse 10. He says, the land has been ravaged and the people and the animals have all disappeared. Now, that's not a pretty picture, not much hope there. But, but God begins to bring hope to the people and to Jeremiah, and then he instructs them in this great verse in, in verse 3 that we just read, where he says, call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. And he says this to Jeremiah, he says, if you will pray, then I will show you great and hidden things that you have not known. And he promises to restore the fortunes to the land. If you look at verse 11, he says, I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first says the Lord. But I want you to notice now what this is beginning to look like before we actually get into the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. He says, there's going to be weddings again. If you look in verse 10 and 11, there had been a, a death of marriages before Jeremiah began prophesying. Even Jeremiah himself, he was forbidden to marry. But a, what a wedding signaled was an investment in the future. You know, if you're going to get married, you know there's probably a future ahead of you. And then secondly, there was thanksgiving in the land again which before this, with all the terrible things that were happening, there was no thanksgiving. So if you look at verse 11, it says, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. But then thirdly, there, were this, there was farming and agricultural uh, things that were resuming. And only in a stable society can you have agriculture. Since raising sheep was such a big part of their economy, this was a huge symbol that prosperity was returning to the people of God. Look at verse 12 and 13, and listen to what it says. It says that in this place is waste without man or beast and in all its cities. And then he says these words, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. So notice what's happening. You, got, you have weddings occurring. You have thanksgiving to the people. The people are thanking God again. There's agriculture. And specifically, there are shepherds tending their flocks. And all that reappearing, all signs 
of great hope. But there's a greater hope to come, a greater hope, a, a promise. He goes on to show us a new day, a new period of time. There's a, a promise that's coming that the Davidic line or that Davidic covenant is going to continue on. The Messiah that Israel was promised would come. And that is our hope of Advent, the coming one. Now, we're going to look now at verses 14 through 16 and kind of focus on that the rest of our time this morning. And we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the, the certainty of this hope. We're going to see the description of it. And then we're going to see the name of it. So look at verse 14. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And I want us to simply notice this, this very simple thing, but a very important thing, and that is the certainty of this promise. You notice he says, I will fulfill. And that's significant to us because, and to the people of that day. And then he says that, that he says, also says that he declares the Lord. The Lord said, by the way, he says this like 170 times in Jeremiah. And the point is, if God declares it, it is so. So you have this certainty that's coming. It signified a God who loves perfectly, who cares perfectly, who has a plan. He has this sure hope. It's not a wish as we talked about, but it's a definite plan to bring good and prosperity to the people of Israel. Do you remember Jeremiah 29, 11? We, we, we like to put that on coffee cups and things like that and shouldn't do that, by the way, because it really has nothing to do with you. But anyway, uh, I hate to tell you that, but it has to do with the people of Israel. And, he, and he, it was a promise to them. And he says this, for I know the plans that I have for you. And again, this is not an individual plan for you, but for the plans for Israel, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare. And it's interesting that that word welfare, that's that Hebrew word that we've heard often. It's called shalom. And he says, and it's not for evil, he says, to give you a future and a hope. And the point is, is that God's plan for his people is this shalom. And shalom is, is taken from this root word, which means to be safe in mind, in body, or a state. It, it speaks of, of not just peace. Like we often think about peace as just the absence of conflict when that's not the biblical peace because there's always conflict. Um, peace, shalom in scripture is completeness. It's, it's fullness. It's, it's a type of fullness that actually encourages you to give back, to, to generously repay something in some way. And so what God is gonna do is he's gonna fulfill his promises so that you and I, and so the people of Israel at the time, they have this shalom, this completeness in our lives so that those who we encounter will sense and know that the living God is the one that we serve. And you see, here's the point. Our hope is based not upon us, but upon a covenant in which our God will fulfill what he said he would do. And this certainty of hope allows us then to live in confidence in him. If you just think about the world that we live in, uh, filled with sinfulness and disobedience to his word, it's not always going to be like that. There's going to be more, and there's going to be this shalom that will come. So here's the point. If our hope is certain, we're less likely to be anxious. Isn't that true? If we have a hope in God, if it's a certain hope, we're, we're less likely to be fearful, 
of the events of the day. We're, we're less likely to be in control of our own lives, really, and we allow God to control them. And we're more likely then to actually to serve other people, to encourage others, because our hope is certain in Christ and we can focus on others. Instead of worrying about ourselves so much, in other words, what this certainty of this hope gives us is an opportunity to serve others and to serve the Lord. So our hope is always a, it's always a future-oriented hope. It's, it's like John Piper says he talks about future grace that we look to. And we actually saw this so clearly this summer as we study uh, the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, remember the men and the women of, of great faith? They, they trusted God, and the passage says, kept reminding us that by faith in the promises of God. And as a result, they were rewarded with eternal life, a life of abundance on this earth, even though it was full of suffering. But it was nonetheless, it was abundant. As they looked to, as that passage told us, a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And the point of all this for us is this. As we come to celebrate Christmas the coming of the Christ child, God in the flesh, the enfleshment of God, the incarnation, we understand it's a reminder of hope. It's a, a certainty that although this world in which we live is important and has purpose, we're simply passing through, that there's this certainty of hope that we will be with him. Now, so that's the certainty of the hope. But now let's see this, the description of this hope that we're talking about. Look at verse 15 with me. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And so it's in this verse that we see this description of hope. And I want you to notice first the timing of this hope. He says, in those days and at that time. So when is that? When will the certainty of the hope that we saw in verse 14 come to pass? What are those days and, and that time? How will we know uh, for certain exactly who is the hope that God's describing for it and, and when it will actually appear? Now, we know this about Scripture. It often has this idea of, of maybe a double fulfillment of things and the idea of the already and not yet. And let me give you an example of this. Uh, in our salvation. The reality is we can, we can say that we are saved. Positionally, we are saved. If you have come to faith in Christ, if you've confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus, if you've believed in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, the, Romans 10 says you're saved. We are saved in the sense of positionally saved. But there's another sense in which we are now being saved. We're not completely saved. I Personally, I don't know if you know this, but I am not perfect. I know this is a, a shock to my wife, but I am not perfect. And, and in the sense, we're imperfect human beings and we're growing in sanctification. We're becoming more like Christ. But then finally, we ultimately will finally be saved. When we die or when Christ returns, we will ultimately and finally be saved. We will be glorified when we are with Christ. So in the same way, we can look at this passage and we can see that the hope that is Christ, first of all, has come. Remember Galatians 4.4? But when the fullness of time had come, and by the way, I love that phrase because that phrase means that at the exact moment in history, 
But in the fullness of time, in other words, God is neither late or early. He's always right on time. Why did Jesus come when he came? Because that was exactly the time he was to come. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we, as sons. So we know that Christ has come, but we also know that he will come again. Acts 1, you remember the, the angel said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up for you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we know that the timing of Jesus to come has happened, but we also know the complete execution of what he has told us about of justice and righteousness and, and complete safety and the fullness really of the church has not yet come to pass yet. That is, at least in a complete sense. But the, the certainty of the hope we have and the certainty of the hope that the peoples of Jeremiah's day had is that the Messiah will come and that he will complete the promise that he made at some point. But it is, as we see, a certainty for us, and, and the timing is going to vary as to its completion and work in our lives. So that's the time. That's a description of the timing. But I want you to notice, secondly, a description of the hope as the righteous branch in verse 15. Notice what it says. He says, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And literally, the, the text says this, it's a, a sprig, maybe you've heard that term before, a sprig or a shoot is going to spring up. And, and the picture here is like a tree cut down and, and all that's left is just a stump. And maybe you've done that before and you've seen just a stump, but out of that stump comes a, a little sprig or, or a branch that comes up. The tree cut down is symbolic of the righteous Davidic kingdom that, and that's been destroyed the the kings were not righteous as we know in the old testament and so it becomes like a stump there's nothing but a stump left and so the davidic line is is now only a stump but god he's going to restore it and he does so by a righteous branch who we know is jesus our lord jesus the messiah turn with me to isaiah 11 if you have your bibles there turn with me to isaiah chapter 11, and I want us to, to see this a little more clearly in verses 1 through 6 of Isaiah 11. Here's what it says. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And Jesse, of course, was David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with the righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins." The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. And so what we see here is this righteous branch, this shoot from the stump. And what happens is he then, he springs into action, so to speak. And if you look at verse 15, you'll see that. Back to Jeremiah 33. He says this, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, 
and Jerusalem will dwell securely. So the first thing we see is that, that he executes justice here. It says that he's going to execute justice. We have seen that already. We saw justice done as Christ dies in our place on the cross at Calvary. Here, true justice is done. Here, our sin is paid for. Here, those who would believe their sins have been laid upon the perfect Messiah. And here, he absorbed the wrath of the Father as payment for our sins. And it was necessary for justice to be done. It was necessary for the sins of God's elect to be paid for. Sin had to be held to account. The scriptures tell us that the wages of sin, of course, is death. But the question was, but who would pay the payment of death for our sins? We could personally not possibly do that ourselves because we know that a perfect sacrifice was necessary to atone for sins, for this justice to actually occur. And so here's what we see. We see the righteous branch, that is Jesus, who was able to execute justice for us by taking the punishment that we deserved. But then there's this second action, you notice. He, he also executes righteousness, he says in this passage, which actually comes from the justice of the work that he performed for us. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, which is probably a familiar verse to many of you, says this. He says that, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, this righteousness of God, which is the idea of God satisfying his justice by putting the penalty of our sin on Christ, is revealed to those who confess Christ that they might live faithfully. And so our expectation of hope is found in Jesus, the righteous branch who died for us, and he executes this justice and righteousness. And you understand, of course, that this, this whole Christmas season that, that we all love it is equally celebrating not just the birth of Christ, but his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then eventually his coming again for us. And, and this season is all about the anticipation of Jesus, the one who came and the one who's coming again. I don't know if you, you probably don't wonder, but you, you might wonder, why, why do I love Christmas so much? Why, why do I think it, it's never too early to celebrate Christmas? I, I just believe that any time is good. You can keep your lights up all year, your tree up all year. I'm good with that because it's all about the righteous branch, it's all about the righteous branch who executes justice and righteousness for our forgiveness of sins. But who also, on his return, will punish the wicked. That's illustrated by his justice again here. And bring his reigning righteousness to our earth. That's all bent, all, it's all pl placed in this whole idea of celebrating Christmas. That's, that's one of the expectations of hope. But I want you to notice third, a third action in this passage, and that's one of security. Look at verse 16 again. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is a, a picture of the expectation of hope that we have as the church of Jesus Christ, that, that we're secure in Christ. Our, our hope that Jesus told us is secure. The, the gates of hell 
can never prevail against the kingdom of God. I don't know if you understand, that statement that Jesus made, that the gates of hell won't, wouldn't prevail against the kingdom of God, is mind-boggling to me. That, that's a, a statement that I often go back to. And, and our expectation here at Living Acts Church is that Satan can never destroy us as long as we're true to the gospel of Jesus Christ, as long as we strive after the very word of God, as long as we endeavor to take this gospel out of this building and continue to build ourselves up in the hope of the gospel. And that's it's an amazing promise that nothing, that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Do you remember Romans 8? Neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so the expectation of hope is clear for the future of Judah and Jerusalem. Someday there's going to be a a new heavens and a new earth and, and the new Jerusalem We don't really quite understand what it's going to be like, but if you read Revelation 21 and 22, you see this new Jerusalem that that hovers, kind of hovers over the new earth. It's really, it's mind-boggling. Again, you keep using that word this morning, but it just boggles my mind to think about what is it like for this new Jerusalem to be hovering over us? This place of of 12 gates in this place where where Christ dwells and he will always be with us. It's a a crazy thing, but a true and wonderful hope that we have. Now, I want us to notice finally this morning this, that this passage also tells us the name of the hope, of this hope. Look at verse 16 again, the last portion of it. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. You see, the beautiful thing that we see in this last verse today is that the city of Jerusalem will be so changed that it will be called the name of the Messiah. The Lord is our righteousness. In Jeremiah 23, 6, that is the Messiah's name. He is called the Lord is our righteousness. The inference here is that Jerusalem would so manifest the qualities of justice and righteousness, that is in comparison to its past record, that she would be worthy of such a name and exemplify the divine order for all the cities and the people in Israel. And this is our hope also, that that we would be changed, that, that we are being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians. He said, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, as we look at the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image that is the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see that? That we too are being conformed to the image of the Son such that we're going to be seen as the Lord is our righteousness. And it's a a sure hope that this is God's certain hope for us. We will and are being changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, let me end this morning by encouraging you this, in this way. God has given us everything we need in his word, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in everyone who believes, and by his sovereignty to allow you, us, all of us, to live in an expectation of hope. And when we embrace this hope, when we expect this hope, 
we are going to be satisfied in God and we're going to be free from the anxiousness of the day. Consider this great verse from Romans 8.32. I love this verse and, and its implication of hope. Listen to what this says. He, that is, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You hear that? Think about that. He, he who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up, for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? That's hope. That's true hope, a certain hope. So here's my prayer. My prayer is that during this Christmas season, you will rediscover that hope, which is really simply the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that we need to repent and to turn from our sin and, and try, trust Christ alone for forgiveness of sin, to trust in the work he accomplished for us on the cross. And for us who believe, it is the idea of preach that gospel to yourself every day. Every day, that expectation of hope, of salvation in Christ, keep preaching it to yourself every day. And now as we approach this time of, of, of the Lord's Supper, we, we've been reminded today about of hope. And, and in the Lord's Supper, what I love about the Lord's Supper is it's a, it's a visual experience, really, of that hope. It's, it's a way of feeling, of touching, of tasting of what Christ did for us. He died for us, his broken body died for us. The juice, of course, represents his shed blood that justice that we just talked about earlier so that we might be declared righteous before the Father. And that's what we're going to do now. So here's what I'd like for you to do for just a minute or two. Will you bow your heads with me and spend just a moment asking God to do two things. To renew your hope in Him and to bring all of us the expectation of that hope. And then secondly, as I mentioned, to see, taste, and feel that hope as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Father, this first Sunday of Advent, we simply wanted to adore you so that we would have an expectation of hope in you. And God, I pray that as we leave here today, that our hope would be not in ourselves, not in what we can do, what we've done, but completely upon you and this gospel message of your death, burial, and resurrection. God, thank you that you came and that you're coming again. Now, God, bless our time together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information on Living Acts Church, please visit our website, www.livingactschurch.com, or you can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Living Acts Church.